Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much to Greg Knapp for filling in for me Monday and Tuesday. Jim, it's good to be back with you. Congratulations on the book sales. And uh, we also want to let folks know we've got good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. Let's start at the Hill Alabama Republicans are showing little appetite for giving former state Supreme Court Chief Justice Roy Moore another shot at winning a U.S. Senate seat, two years after he blew what should have been a gimme election in the ruby-red state after being embroiled in a sordid personal scandal. A new survey from the Alabama-based polling firm Signal shows Moore taking just 13% of the vote in the Republican primary. He trails former Auburn University football coach Tommy Tuberville, who leads with 29%, and Congressman Bradley Byrne, who has 21%. Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill, who launched his campaign Tuesday, begins with 12% of the vote, and State Representative Arnold Mooney takes 2%. 22% of voters say they are undecided. So, Jim, there's two good parts to this. First of all, there's A, two people ahead, and B, he's only at 13%. You got to think that in Alabama, pretty much everybody's got an opinion already on Roy Moore. This is our good martini. It is good news for Republicans and for conservatives in general, Greg. But let's keep in mind, my understanding is Roy Moore does not mind being in the teens. Oh. I'll, I'll let that, that joke grenade go for a few moments and then explode. I think it's safe to say that Roy Moore is well known in Alabama. He is well known nationally. I think any candidate, not just the ones that have had humiliating defeats, but anybody who's run for office and it did not succeed, it's very fair to ask, what's going to be different this time? What has changed? And for a depressing number of candidates, the answer is usually some variation of, well, the electorate will realize what a terrible mistake they made not electing me before. They will come to their senses, be charmed by my persuasiveness and gravitate towards me. And it looks like that is not going to happen here. I think it's very safe to say. Roy Moore, uh, his alphabet does not go all the way to Z. Uh, he's not operating with a full deck, however you want to use that metaphor. Everything from the waving a gun around on stage to riding a horse on election day to all these things. All the money he raised for an alleged recount in that Senate race that did not happen. Look, uh, you know, don't go away mad, Roy Moore. Just go away. You've had your chance. You've had your chance to make your case. The Sean Hannity's of the world were like, look, you got to answer some serious questions here. And he failed to have any legitimate answers for all the allegations of cruising the malls and looking after uh, women who were far too young for him. So he's just terrible top to bottom. And there's no reason for Alabama Republicans to give him a second look. There's no reason to indicate that this one will do any better. I think the best you know, case for this is that people have realized, no, you can lose these so-called unlosable races. You do kind of wonder about those 13%. And what, you know, are, are they all blood relatives of him? What else is be the justification for that? So hopefully his campaign dies quietly in the primary. We'll see how things shake out. It's a little unnerving that there's two other guys below him. But uh, maybe that's just a matter of being early in the, in the primary process. So, uh, again... Nothing could make 2020 more difficult for Republicans than having Roy Moore on the ballot again. So far, it looks like that scenario will be avoided. 
Yeah, it's, as you said, early in the game, but he should have pretty much universal name recognition. And there's more good news in this poll. Almost two-thirds of Republican voters say they have an unfavorable impression of Moore, while just 28 perceive him in a favorable light. Nearly a third of Republican voters, 31 percent, say they would consider voting for Doug Jones in November if Moore captures the Senate nomination. Uh, Tuberville has a 56 percent approval rating in Alabama, which just goes to prove... He might actually get some votes from Crimson Tide fans. I know it's tough uh, in those situations because he did pretty well against Alabama when he was coaching there. But when it comes to actually controlling the U.S. Senate, uh, maybe they look past what happens on that one Saturday in November. Look, you know, as a northerner, I'll be honest, I rarely understand this. My understanding, Greg, is this is something akin to the slow burning national civil war that happens between Yankees fans and Red Sox fans most of the summer. Yeah, obviously the Yankees and Red Sox get to play each other more in a season, but this is the rivalry where a few years ago Auburn won the game and Alabama fans poisoned the trees at Toomer's Corner where they usually toss toilet paper up into the branches when Auburn wins a big game. And the crazy part was that they couldn't take this guy to trial because they couldn't find a jury that would be willing to lay aside their rivalry allegiances to actually adjudicate the case. Uh, you know, in other words, this is the sort of situation, Greg, where Sunni and Shia would say, whoa, 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 you guys got to calm down. <laughs> Something like this, that. You guys are getting kind of out of hand. Guys, guys, keep perspective. This isn't worth all that uh, fury. And the good news is, is that Election Day will be before the Alabama-Auburn game, so Crimson Tide fans can pull the lever and uh, there won't be a recent result to uh, stew bitterness in one direction or the other. All right, Jim, let's move to our bad martini now. And uh, for those of us who've been following this story, it doesn't come as a surprise, but it still is bad news. Uh, you talk about this in the morning jolt, and you say the news that the National Rifle Association has halted production of all programs on NRA TV is both expected and yet still surprising to hear that it's now official. Once the NRA's main public relations firm, Ackerman McQueen, refused to offer more details about how they were spending the NRA's money, an outcome like this became almost inevitable. The NRA wasn't going to continue financing a communications effort on its behalf without accountability, and Ackerman McQueen wasn't going to be able to continue producing that communications effort without the NRA's financing. So a lot of good programming on the shelf now, a lot of good people either looking for work or kind of in limbo in other ways in terms of their employment. Jim, the NRA is obviously a lightning rod when it comes to the left, but they do a lot of good work away from the political arena, which is also important work, but they do a tremendous amount of good teaching gun safety and also just defending the Second Amendment in a lot of different avenues. So what's your reaction to the news that NRA TV is down for the count, at least for the moment, and uh, that the NRA is still in disarray? Yeah, so longtime listeners know my best friend is Cam Edwards, who's hosted a show pretty much uh, since the beginning of NRA, what was then NRA News, uh, now it's called NRA TV back in 2004. He got the word late last night. Uh, It was a very short, terse message, and he doesn't know what he's doing next. So if you're looking for a very good, the the best radio host who's not named Greg, (laughs) he's out there. My suspicion is that something akin to NRA TV or, or NRA News will return in some form someday. The National Rifle Association could very well choose to do it in-house. This was all done through Ackerman McQueen. The relationship with Ackerman McQueen was long-standing, went back to the 1980s and the I'm the NRA campaign. The short version is that at some point, as the money started flowing and as NRA TV and various other projects that Ackerman McQueen was doing got bigger and bigger and the cost to the NRA got larger and larger... Some folks at the NRA said, hey, you know, I'm, where are we, what are we getting for all this money? And they asked for some financial documents, some accounting for what had been spent. And Ackerman McQueen said, no. 
And that was that's really unusual when a contractor says, no, we're not going to tell you how we're spending your money. Uh, you might argue that something like this was almost inevitable once that decision came into place. People may remember the coverage of the NRA convention this year. Ali North, the president of the organization, resigning, making allegations of uh, improper spending by uh, Wayne LaPierre and, and other high-level officials. Counter accusations that Ali North was being paid more than a million dollars to do a version of his show and had only done three episodes so far. It is an ugly situation. And what's kind of frustrating is you see this and say, oh, this means the NRA is in trouble and you know gun control is more popular. This actually has almost nothing to do with policy. There's almost as nothing. You know, that old saying, you know, send lawyers, guns, and money. This really only has to do with lawyers and money. Uh, basically, what is Ackerman McQueen providing to the NRA for their money? And has Ackerman McQueen kind of bought off the watchdog, so to speak, by giving them generous contracts. This is a bit of self-dealing, things like that. Are NRA donors getting their money's worth? You saw lawsuits and counter-lawsuits between Ackerman McQueen and the NRA, and it was kind of inevitable that this was creating an untenable situation, that when two organizations are legally going to war with each other, you're not likely to see them continue to attempt to create television programming uh, on their behalf. I think it's a very bad situation. I think it's a little unnerving that we've heard very little from the NRA since the uh, convention because these were, it struck me as very you know, serious allegations of you know, spending money on frivolous expenses and you know, the uh, wardrobe expenses of, of Wayne LaPierre and things like that. But even more disturbing and frustrating, a couple of days ago, there was word that Chris Cox, who is probably best described, he's head of the NRA ILA, the Institute for Legislative Action, basically their lobbying arm. And Chris Cox is very good at what he does. I've had the chance to interview him. So a couple of days ago, he was put on administrative leave, and Wayne LaPierre accused him of being part of some sort of coup attempt against him within the organization. As we are having this conversation, Greg, it has just been reported, Chris Cox has resigned. And I think this is probably one of the most ominous 24 hours for the NRA in a really long time, because this indicates that, one, the allegations of propriety really aren't being addressed, or there's no further information about this. Chris Cox is really good at what he does, agree with his cause or not. Him walking away from the organization is very ominous. And of course, you know, for my buddy Cam and for Dana Lash and everybody else who was doing what they were doing for NRA TV, it's a very frustrating day when you lose your job and you don't know what you'll be doing next, or whether that's possibly coming back quickly or not so quickly or someday down the road. So very bad. And you got to figure with all this going on, you got to wonder how effective the NRA is, is going to be operating not just at the national level and lobbying Congress, but also at state levels and, and all the other fights over gun rights that are likely to occur. So it is a terrible mess. I wish I had good news, but right now, Greg, I just don't see it. No, it's a very dark time for those who are vigorous defenders of the Second Amendment. And like you said, it's got nothing to do with the cause. It has everything to do with uh, finances and fractured relationships. And hopefully something can happen here where good people get their jobs back or, or find uh, work quickly. And the cause of defending the Second Amendment is robust once again, and hopefully soon. All right, let's move to our crazy martini now, Jim. And tonight is night one of the epic first uh, two nights of the Democratic presidential debates. Tonight is more of the lesser known candidates and the lower polling candidates, with the exception of Elizabeth Warren. Beto O'Rourke's out there, too, but his polling numbers are pretty much down in the dumps. Tomorrow night's the one where the bigger names are going to be on the stage. And one of those folks is South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, known as Mayor Pete to a lot of folks. But 
He's not having a very good stretch here. For a long time, he was the fresh face, very even-tempered guy whose rational way of approaching the issues uh, seemed to resonate with folks. Then he started to tack leftward, and now realities in South Bend are causing major problems for him. Uh, this is first Jazz Shaw at Hot Air and then the Free Beacon, first Hot Air. Following one shooting by the police and multiple shots fired at the police in South Bend, Indiana, Mayor Pete Buttigieg is facing a full-blown political crisis. He's had to skip out on various national campaign events to run back home and try to keep a lid on the situation there. He has activists calling him a racist who can't keep his cops under control and a police chief who says he's throwing the cops under a bus. Both sides, says Jazz Shaw, have some valid complaints from the look of things. And now, to top it all off, the former president of the South Bend Common Council is sending out a one-word message to the mayor. Free Beacon, after the fallout from a recent police shooting, unleashed turmoil on South Bend, Indiana. Former Common Council President Derek Dieter has a message for Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Resign. Quote, because of Pete's selfishness, in my opinion, he is still the mayor, Dieter told the Free Beacon. Dieter explained that if Buttigieg were to resign, a provisional mayor would be chosen in a caucus by city precinct leaders. A new mayor, he says, would be able to devote greater attention to South Bend than Buttigieg can as he is running for president. Quote, to me, it doesn't make sense. If you're running for president, that's a lot of pressure. You've got to be on the road. Everything that happens in South Bend shouldn't be on your mind. You should be concentrating on running for president. So I'm adamant that he should resign as mayor. So, Jim, there's a lot of things that can derail you as you pursue the Democratic presidential nomination. Being just absolutely hammered on both sides when it comes to racially charged police incidents is probably the thing that could derail you fastest. And that's where Pete Buttigieg is right now. It's really kind of fascinating to see the coverage that he's gotten and the glowing tone and, you know, the cover of Time magazine or something. And now what has happened in South Bend is a very unfortunate situation, but also a, I think, a not wildly, unbelievably uncommon one, which is, you know, a, a racially charged police shooting. And my guess is some version of this has happened if in not every major U.S. city, then probably in a whole bunch of them. And Pete, this was a good chance for Pete Buttigieg to showcase what he can do as a leader. It is a tough situation. It is a tense situation. People are angry at each other between the African-American community and the local police force. And he has fumbled it, I think it is safe to say. He gave it his best shot. He did that whole town hall meeting. He had wore the bullhorn and you heard people kind of, you know, sneering that he was, you know, Paul Monitor Pete. But he held that. He was up on stage and people said, everybody, this is not just, you know, crazy right wingers like you and me. You know, the likes of David Axelrod, the entire table of ladies at The View, most media coverage is saying that, wow, he really handled that badly. And, you know, I like to point out or, you know, that we constantly told people that, oh, he went to Harvard, then he went on to Oxford, and then he became I'm a consultant at McKinsey. He's just the smartest guy ever. Well, he may be very smart, but he's put him in a situation like this and he's having a very hard time with it. My suspicion is less because of a matter of smarts, but because of a matter of inevitably handling this situation means telling people things they probably don't want to hear. In the case of this police shooting, the guy's body camera never got turned on. Now, to a lot of people, that looks suspicious. And to a lot of people, that looks like a situation in which the police is not taking it seriously, that they have some things to hide, that they don't want the public to ever be able to see and review their interactions with the public. According to the report, the guy came at the cop with a knife. If that's the case, the cop has every right to defend himself, including with deadly force. 
you know, this may very well have been a legitimate police shooting, a re- response to a, a you know, potential deadly threat. Neither nobody wants to hear these sorts of things, you know. And if you if you know Pete Buttigieg says, ah, you know, welcome to governing. This stuff is going to be hard. I have a corner post on this today, kind of laying out. Look, what nobody's going to say on the debate stage tonight, and what we didn't see much of in 2016, or really no presidential candidate wants to acknowledge, governing is hard. If it were easy, we would always be well governed, right? And you can have the most you know glowing resume and all the accolades and all that kind of stuff. But at some point, life, you know, if you're, if you're governing, whether it's a locality, a state, or a country, at some point, you're going to get a big problem thrown your way. And honestly, I don't even think this is, you know, the biggest, this is nowhere near the biggest problems imaginable. You think, you know, think Hurricane Katrina, right? Think about 9-11 style attacks. Think about, uh, I thought about Deepwater Horizon and how it, you know, came close to wiping out the entire economy of the Gulf Coast for a, a long stretch there a couple of years ago. L.A. riots after Rodney King, right? I mean, you know, if you're, you know, life is going to throw really big problems at you. So well, you're going to hear a lot of happy talk on the debate stage tonight. You're going to hear a lot of, I can do it. And, you know, I, I believe children of the future, teach them well, and they will lead the way. You know, all kind of, you know, standard boilerplate rhetoric that is just kind of this blind denial of the fact that, you know, if you look, governing at any level has its challenges. Being president of the United States is a really hard job. And one of, you know, one of the first indicators of having 25 Democratic candidates now is it shows me that at least half those people have no idea of the difficulties of the job they're heading into. And ideally, a debate process would, uh, would reveal that. I don't think we're going to get much of that tonight. I think we get a lot of, you know, not quite what's your favorite color type questions, but, you know, tell me what you do for education, you know, style uh, uh, soft focus and, and softballs and things like that. I think Pete Buttigieg and his experience here in South Bend is demonstrating you could put all the smarts in the world may not be enough when you're in a really tough, tense situation with no easy answers. Now, that's a good point. And I don't want to be a reverse ageist, but it shows that maybe you do need more experience to be running for the most complicated job in the nation politically and uh, perhaps the most complicated job of a world leader uh, anywhere in, in the world. And if uh, you've got big problems running South Bend, you might not be ready for the Oval Office where all you get is the worst problems uh, that nobody else below you can solve. But, uh, Jim, as we get ready for these debates here, I know you've got your full stock of popcorn ready and everything. MSNBC, of course, is hosting the debates. And so far today, they've had riveting television of Julian Castro and Bill de Blasio checking out the debate stage for like minutes at a time. It's live coverage of them standing there looking with their uh, hand over their eyebrows into the lights. And it's just riveting that uh, these guys are actually on the stage. And I'm sure they'll live up to all the billing tonight. Greg, is it is it like the the 18th hole, the Masters or something? (laughs) So a, lot, a lot of difficult, you know, lies and, and you know, uh, uh, the, the podium is a little wobbly. You got to account for that or, or you know, like, it's not like a new baseball stadium where you got to figure out where the fences are, or which went the way. Guys, it's a podium and it's a stage. I think you've seen this thing before. <laughs> I'm just curious. Just, you know, what are you know, bo- I'm pretty sure the bomb sniffing dogs have been through there already. I'm have one. What are, you almost want to go up to him and say, Mr. Mayor. I guess I could say also a Mr. Mayor, considering Julian <laughs> Castro was mayor of uh, San Diego. Mr. Mayors, what are you looking for there? Did, did somebody lose a contact? <laughs> yeah, it's annoying enough when they do it at the convention or a general election debate, but at least the stakes are much higher in that situation. we got to come up with the uh, political version of batting practice. Does your campaign manager stand out where Chuck Todd's going to be and go, all right, 30 seconds on gun control, 30 seconds on Green New Deal, 30 seconds on abortion? Greg, it just suddenly dawned on me. Actually, you know why those two candidates might be? All right, so first of all, who's the tallest candidate in the field? De Blasio. 
de Blasio, right? He is this like, you know, eight foot, three inch giant, <laughs> you know, groundhog killing machine. And I believe Julian Castro is like, what, four, six, four, seven? <laughs> I exaggerate slightly. But, you know, the tallest candidate in the field, lowest, shortest candidate. Maybe they're both worried about, you know, how is the podium look? Do I look small at this podium? You know, do I look too tall at this podium? You know, so that's the only thing I can think of where you'd want to go out there, stand and make sure everything is uh is looking right. Yeah, make sure all the telephone books are there for Julian to stand on. Exactly. Or he could borrow that thing that John Lovitz had when he was Michael Dukakis in the Saturday Night Live <laughs> debate with the with the power lift and then uh, got too high and he had to bring it back down a little bit. Uh, hopefully that's still around somewhere because he could use that instead. De Blasio is just looking at every moment. I just want to have as many handshake moments as possible. <laughs> Where I just reach down and shake the hand of what looks like a, he looks like a regular person. He looks like um, Dorothy amongst the munchkins. <laughs> oh, we can't wait. Actually, we can, but we'll still probably talk about <laughs> it tomorrow. Jim, see you then. Good to be back with you. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Thanks. Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And don't forget to join us again tomorrow on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.